0: wonderful privilege we have to be saved by your grace that you have done everything necessary for us that nothing at all is dependent upon man or man's efforts man's energy, man's desire everything is based upon what you have done you made a plan in eternity past a plan that was based upon grace that you would do everything for us and all we would have to do is receive it as a free gift Father, along with the plan of salvation, you have given us everything we need to know for life and godliness in your word. Now, Father, as we study your word, the word of truth, the word of life, we pray that you would help us to understand these things through the indwelling, teaching, filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Pray that we could understand these things, see how they apply to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Every now and then I get something humorous I want to share with the congregation. Somebody sent me a few things related to bumper stickers. And one of these bumper stickers sort of applies, I think, at this early service on a Sunday morning. The face is familiar, but I can't quite remember the name. Boy, that's a slow burn this morning. Y'all are ready for... (laughs) jokes this morning you know when you wake up in the morning you look in the mirror and you're not quite sure who that is the face is familiar but i can't quite remember the name another bumper sticker says cleverly disguised as a responsible adult and one that i think is sort of the mantra for the age if at first you don't succeed Blame someone else and seek counseling. (laughs) And then one of my favorites, how many roads must a man travel down before he admits he's lost? Well, that got a few chuckles going, maybe generated a little extra energy in the brain cells this morning. So now we're ready to focus and concentrate Study God's Word. So let op- let's open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Now we have spent the last four months, I think, four months just about, studying the passage from Galatians 5:16 down through 25, dealing with the entire subject of walking by means of the Holy Spirit. That is, it seems to me, almost a parenthesis in what Paul is saying at the end of this letter to the Galatians. Remember, the Galatians had a major doctrinal problem. They had a problem with grace. When Paul first came to these churches in Galatia, he taught them the gospel. The gospel is very simple. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul made it very clear that everyone is a sinner. We've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. At the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all our sins. When he went to the cross, God the Father took every single sin in human history and he imputed that to Jesus Christ. Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Jesus Christ was impeccable. In His humanity, He was able not to sin. In His deity, He was not able to sin. In His humanity, He lived His life on the earth. In the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and through the usage of Bible doctrine and the filling of the Holy Spirit, He was able not to sin. So Jesus Christ was perfect. He who knew no sin was made sin. Every single sin in human history was imputed to him on the cross. That means it was charged to his account. So Jesus Christ paid that penalty in his death, and the last thing he said before he uh, died physically on the cross was the Greek word "telestai." Accent is on the second syllable, t-e-t-e-l-e-s-t-a-i. And it means it is finished. It is a, the perfect tense form of the infinitive, meaning that it is a, finished in the past with the results that go on forever. That means everything has been done. Everything has been paid for. There is nothing more to be done. During the three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m., during that time of darkness, God the Father poured out every single sin on Jesus Christ. He was separated from the Father, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is during those three hours that he paid the penalty for sin, which was spiritual death, and then he died physically. His physical death was designed, it was a consequence of spiritual death in, in the human race, but it was designed also to, for him to go to the grave, spend three days, where he would be resurrected as a sign of, of God's acceptance of His sacrifice on the cross, so this is the gospel. Paul expresses it very clearly in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, three through four, that we know according to the Scriptures that Christ died for us, that He was buried, and that He rose again according to the, the, rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. So that is the gospel, and we appropriate that through simple belief. Faith alone in Christ alone. The problem was that there were a bunch of uh, uh, Jews in the early church that were antagonistic to this gospel of grace. Grace means that God did everything for us, and it is a free gift. And they wanted to uh, include a lot of things related to the Old Testament systems in terms of the Mosaic law. And so they came along behind Paul and Silas, and they said, well, Paul's a great guy, and he's taught some great things about salvation and about the spiritual life, but if you really want to have super spirituality, if you want to really have a close walk with the Lord, then you have to become like a Jew, and that would be through circumcision, and you have to obey the Mosaic law, and then you will have a victorious Christian life. There's always people in the church down through the centuries, who want to add something to Christ's work on the cross. At that time, it's the Mosaic Law. There's still people who want to do that, people who add morality, people who want to add all kinds of things to the simple gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. It's not faith plus commitment. It's not faith plus baptism. It's not faith plus joining the church. It's not faith plus anything. It's simply faith alone in Christ alone. So Paul writes this epistle in order to straighten out the Galatians. Not only did they have a problem with salvation being by by faith alone, but they also had a problem with the spiritual life. And they were trying to live the spiritual life on the basis of simple morality. The use of the Mosaic Law, which was, remember, it was designed as the governing code of conduct, the code of law for the nation Israel. That included both believers and unbelievers. So once again, they're trying to utilize a system that is designed for believers and unbelievers, just like morality, in order to make that some sign or criterion for spirituality. And that was absolutely false, and so Paul has to straighten them out. Now, one thing that happens whenever you start emphasizing uh, legalism or human ability, whenever you have a problem with grace, then you have a problem with everything that goes along with grace orientation. You have a problem with freedom. You don't understand what spiritual freedom is really all about. You will also have a problem with humility. Humility goes hand in hand with grace orientation, for in grace orientation we realize that God did everything for us. Nothing is dependent upon us, and that is a very humbling concept to realize that we just relax in the plan of God. And that leads us to the third thing that goes along with grace, which is a relaxed, mental attitude, not getting uptight when somebody else sins, not falling apart when you hear about some other believer or see somebody cross the church do something or say something that you don't approve of. You have to have a relaxed mental attitude. Remember, God the Father knows every single sin that you and I are ever going to commit. And God does not get shocked, upset, go into some kind of emotional jag every time he sees you sin. God knows exactly what you're going to do. He's always known it. He's not surprised or upset, and God is very relaxed. So three things go along with grace. an Understanding and appreciation for freedom, humility, and a relaxed mental attitude. Now, understanding grace is not simply some academic exercise where you go through and try to understand the theological concept of grace. Remember, doctrine is never merely academic. Of course, we always have to start with academic principles. It's just like anything in life, even driving. You remember what that was like. Now, maybe some of you just got stuck out on a tractor somewhere, and you were on the farm, and you learned how to drive a little differently. But for many people in our society, the way they learn how to drive is they first meet it in some kind of physical education class or something like that, and they have to take what's called a driver's education, and they get a book, and they sit down, and they learn what a gear shift looks like, and they learn what a steering wheel is, and they learn all the nomenclature for a car, steering wheel, transmission, oil pan, accelerator, brake. They learn all the nomenclature, and then after they learn the basic principles in a textbook, then they go out for practical experience. Same way in mathematics, before you ever get to the point of having to fill out your income tax, That pleasant experience we all have once a year. You have to go through various classes to learn basic mathematics. And you learn basic addition, subtraction, and multiplication, division, and you build on that. So everything in life begins with learning some basic academic principles, but then it moves beyond that to application. And the point is that doctrine always affects behavior. False doctrine will affect your behavior negatively, and the true Bible doctrine will affect your character positively. That's the point of the study of the uh, works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit, which we just finished. This is one reason why we stress doctrine so much around here. You have to change how a person thinks before you truly change their character and their behavior. And the difficulty is that most Americans have developed to a fine art, the ability to compartmentalize. We come to Bible class on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and we take the doctrine that we learn, and isn't that wonderful, and we put it off into one little room in our brain, and then we go out and we live our life, and we have our work life, and our family life, and our academic life, and school life, and somehow the doctrine we learn on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, we don't let that out of the closet the rest of the week. That's what happens with a lot of people. And doctrine, if it's truly understood and goes beyond gnosis, remember the scripture says that when it says knowledge puffs up in 1 Corinthians 8, it's knowledge makes arrogant. It's not talking about uh, epinosis knowledge. The word there in the Greek is very important, very technical. It's gnosis, which means academic knowledge. And when we learn doctrine, when we learn the word of God, we have a procedure which we call the grace learning spiral. As the pastor-teacher communicates doctrine, it is the under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that doctrine is converted into pneumaticos doctrine according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That is spiritual things, spiritual words, and that goes into our soul and it is understandable. The Holy Spirit will make everything understandable. It doesn't matter what your academic background is. It doesn't matter... Uh, how much schooling you've had, it doesn't matter what your IQ level is. This is a grace gift by God the Father to every single believer so we can all learn doctrine. Now, it may take you a little longer, a little more concentration than someone else, but the issue is that God the Holy Spirit will make everything clear to you. He makes it understandable. That does not mean that He understands it for you. In the analogy God the Holy Spirit is going to make the food nourishing. He's not going to chew it for you. He is going to make it possible for you to chew it, to break it down, to understand it, but He is not going to do the understanding for you. That's where your volition comes in. You have to think about it. Sometimes you have to take notes. You go home, you think about it, you hear it repeated 5, 10, 20, 30, 500 times, And finally, it begins to make sense to you. You've thought about it and thought about it, and that's true for everybody at every level. I find it all the time. Every now and then I'll hit something that I've studied and maybe taught, and all of a sudden I'll see it in a new light. I'll see it in a different context, a different passage, and something new about that doctrine becomes clear to me that hasn't been clear to me before. And so it becomes understandable, and at that point it becomes gnosis, which is academic knowledge. And it enters into the blue area here on the diagram, this outer circle, which is the noose. That is the staging area in the thinking process of the mind. The scripture uses two different words, noose and cardia, to describe the cognitive functions in the soul, the thinking in the inner man, the thinking in the soul. Nous is the staging ground for gnosis. When we exercise positive volition towards that academically understood doctrine then the Holy Spirit converts it into epinosis and stores it in the innermost core of our thinking, which is called the heart. The heart is the core of our thinking. Then it is applicational knowledge. That's the difference between this word epinosis and the word gnosis. Epinosis, the prefix epi, is a preposition, and it means full knowledge. So it is moved from gnosis to epinosis. Now it's applicational knowledge it's been stored in the soul just as when you eat you chew food and you swallow it from the point of swallowing on that the process is automatic automatic muscles take over automatic reflexes it goes into the stomach various uh, enzymes are secreted and it's broken down and then it's converted into uh, sugar and other chemicals and the blood stream moves it out to nourish and feed the cells in the body so it becomes usable but then you have to exercise your volition again to use it. You have to decide to move your arm or move your leg or walk or go down to the gym and work out, whatever it may be. Same thing is true in, this, in the analogy, uh, in the analog with doctrine. You, it becomes usable, it's stored in the soul, but then you have to exercise your volition in order to use it. So doctrine that is merely academic does you no good whatsoever. In fact, it leads to arrogance, and that's part of the problem in the Galatian church. They are operating on arrogance because they have cut themselves off from grace. They're operating on the power of the sin nature, and so arrogance is dominating the uh, congregation there and creating all kinds of internal problems. Remember, whenever you emphasize legalism, An external conformity to moral regulations, it always leads to a production in the congregation of mental attitude sins of arrogance and self-righteousness. This, in turn, will always be accompanied by various sins of the tongue, such as gossip, maligning, running down other members of the congregation who don't quite measure up, judging one another, and then the horrible practice of starting to interfere in people's lives and violating their privacy just because they do something that you don't think they ought to do. Now, and I'm always amazed in various con- uh, congregations how some Christians just can't wait to find something wrong in somebody else's life and then jump in there and try to straighten them out. Usually it involves some overt sin such as a fornication or language or something like that or maybe they God forbid had a glass of wine or drank a beer or something like that or maybe in some churches if a woman shows up wearing a slacks instead of a dress then they get all uptight about that I told you the story about a friend of mine who had pastored or youth pastor in a church and he left the church because of their legalism they, they thought that women ought to always wear dresses should never wear slacks so when the they took the high school group skiing, the girls had to wear dresses over their bib overalls. That's just one extreme that, that people get into. So they, and one of the passages they run to in order to justify straightening everybody out, out is the passage we come to this morning in Galatians 6 1. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, the first thing we're going to have to do is break this down, understand the context. Then we're going to have to do some word studies, understand some of the words involved, because the translation is not as clear as it ought to be. And, of course, when we do that, look at the syntax. Now let's remember some things about the context. I think you'll find this interesting. We've spent so much time in, in uh, verses 16 through 25 that we have sort of lost our orientation to the whole passage. As I've said before, sometimes we get so caught up in the details that we lose sight of what the forest looks like because we're just examining a few trees. So let's go back and look at the forest of Galatians chapter 5 and get back into the context. In these verses... Paul is emphasizing the principle of grace in terms of personal relationships. Galatians 5:16 to 25 simply focused on the mechanics for living the spiritual life. We are, we're commanded to walk by means of the Spirit in contrast to walking according to the sin nature. So in those verses from 16 to 25, the issue is to let you know that there's only two dynamics at work. And your spiritual life or your life is energized by one of those two dynamics. It's either the Holy Spirit or it's the sin nature. In his conclusion in verse 25, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, that is, and we do, once you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are instantly regenerated. The Bible also calls that being born again. God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to you a human spirit to which God imputes His very own eternal life. That's yours forever. So if we live by the Spirit, and we do because we are believers, he says, let us also walk by means of the Spirit. And we saw that that was a different word than peripeteo used in verse 16. It's stoikeo, which means to walk in the path, to follow a set course of action. It was used in uh, classic Greek to mean walk in ranks. And I think the best way to translate that is to say walk in the path or in the track, Laid down by the Holy Spirit. Of course, the track that's laid down by the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. And this means that walking by means of the Spirit is not some sort of internal, subjective, liver quiver kind of Christianity, which is so common. How do you know if you're following the Holy Spirit? Well, let me do kind of a spirit check here and see if... uh, I'm doing it right. That, that's common. That's, you'll hear that taught from pulpits, and it, just, it, it identifies the spiritual life with nothing more than emotion. But what this passage does is remove the whole context of the spiritual life from subjectivity. There's an objective path to walk down, and this is expressed by the mandates of the, of the Scriptures of the New Testament, which define the boundaries within which we are to live as believers. So it is an objective path. Now, that paragraph from 16 to 25 is a parenthesis to describe that the underlying dynamic that must function in the spiritual life if you're going to realize the rest of what Paul is saying in Galatians 5. So let's look at that. In that section, if you go back and look at 5.1, Paul is coming to the application section. In almost all of his epistles, he has three, four, five, six, seven chapters. Anywhere from half to three-fourths of the epistle is laying down the doctrinal basis. And then the last third to half draws out the implication or applications from that doctrine. So we have seen in four chapters the explanation of the doctrines of grace in both salvation and the spiritual life. And then starting in 5.1, he comes to the conclusion. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. And there we saw that that, uh, this was about five, no, this was further back than that. This was back in March. And I know that as sharp as all of you are, your memory doesn't quite go back that far. This is the Greek word eleutheria. E-L-E-U-T-H-E-R-I-A. And it means freedom or liberty. I prefer the translation liberty. Liberty includes often as a nuance responsibility, which is surely part of what Paul is emphasizing here. And it is a dative feminine singular, and the dative here indicates the sphere of our life as believers. We are to live in the sphere of freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, we saw when we studied that, as we did last week in our study of the, of the spiritual life, that this freedom took place at the instant of our salvation. For in the instant of our salvation, we are identified. The Scripture uses the word baptism, which uh, to often to a lot of people uh, connotes water but it doesn't mean that in many places. The significance of it is to denote identification. And at the point of salvation, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, so that we are dead to sin. That means that the power of the sin nature is completely broken in our life. That doesn't mean it's removed. It doesn't mean we no longer have a sin nature. It just means we're no longer slaves to it. Prior to salvation, we had no option but to sin, no matter how good, moral, wonderful, sweet you are. You were a sinner, and the only option you had was to live in the power of the sin nature. But now that power is broken, and you can live, and you can produce absolute righteousness in your life. So when we studied that, we said that the issue in freedom is always to define in context what we are free from. Some people have taken this to mean, oh, well, Christ died for my sins. He paid the price, so I can just do whatever I want to. That's not freedom. That's anarchy. This is not talking about spiritual anarchy. The context is talking about freedom now to serve God exclusively. The previous context in verse 4, we saw the analogy between the free woman... Represented by Sarah versus the slave woman, Hagar. It was the analogy between Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion. The liberty in view here is specifically a liberty from the bondage to the Mosaic law. And by extension, we saw that that meant liberty or freedom from the sin nature. So the kind of freedom that was being talked about here is freedom from legalism, freedom from bondage to the sin nature. Then Paul went on to say in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, and that would be a sign that they were entering Judaism and going under the Mosaic law, Christ will be of no benefit to you, no value, no profit, aphelon in the Greek. Christ will be of no profit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So if you, if you take it a little, you have to take the whole thing, it's a... It's a Little bit, it's the whole package or nothing. All or nothing idea. Verse 4, You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. We saw that that's not talking about losing salvation. It's talking about setting yourself free, being shipwrecked on grace, or cutting yourself off from the source of grace. And that's the idea, that you're either operating in one of two spheres. The Holy Spirit is the energizing power, or the sin nature. Over here, if you're operating on the law, even just a little bit, you're energized by the sin nature. This is going to be the sphere of grace when God's grace is going to be present and manifest in your life. So, if you have rejected living the spiritual life on the basis of the Holy Spirit, and you're trying to do it on your own power in the law, then what you have done, in effect, is cut yourself off or severed yourself from grace. And that is the thrust of what Paul is saying in verses 2 through 4. Then in verses 5 through 12, he says that grace, the grace-oriented life, is going to be characterized by two things. Faith, or that is, what it, both believing doctrine and the doctrine that is believed, and impersonal love. Verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5 of Galatians. For we, through the Spirit, by means of faith... So, the life that is lived on the basis of the Holy Spirit is done so on the basis of faith. Trust in God's Word, mixing our faith with the promises, principles, and provisions outlined in God's Word. We, through the Spirit, by means of faith, are waiting for the hope of of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith, i.e., what is believed, doctrine, faith... Working through love. So with those two words, Paul encapsulates or summarizes everything that's involved in the spiritual life. And then in verse 7 he says, you were running well. In other words, when I came and you understood the gospel, and you understood grace, you did well. What hindered you? What ended the process? What hurt you? It was these false teachers that came in. And he says that just a little leaven leavens the whole whole lump of dough. So if you get just a little false doctrine, it destroys the whole principle of grace and plunges you back over here operating on the basis of legalism and its core is arrogance. That's covered in verses 5 through 12. And then he comes back to deal with the key issue, which is love, in verses 13... Now, when we talk about love, we have carefully defined two categories of love in the spiritual life. The first we call personal love. Personal love is a love that is based on something positive found in the person who is the object of love. Whenever you say, I love you... Love is a transitional verb which takes a direct object. Now, when most people say, I love you, what they're really saying is, there is something in you that I find attractive, enjoyable, pleasurable, and so much so that I want to be with you a lot and spend a lot of time with you. So all of the value, then, is found on this side of the equation, in the object of the love. But as soon as something uh, unacceptable is found over here, then the love begins to waver. In contrast to this, we have talked about impersonal love. Impersonal love just means that, that instead of there being a personal relationship here, this, and, this personal love involves some kind of personal knowledge in the object of love. But in impersonal love, you don't even need to know the person at the other end of the equation, because all of the value is based here in the subject of the love. This is where the integrity resides. Now, when we say that we love people because we're sinners and we're faulty, and because they're sinners and they're faulty, this personal love is always built on a shaky foundation. And it's usually, in our society, predicated upon a lot of emotion Emotion and sentimentality and as a result it doesn't last long and as soon as something comes along that's a little bit tough to handle it begins to fall apart but there are some people even even unbelievers have a certain level of integrity and so they reach a uh, some level of stability and personal love but the scripture says that the only person that we can truly have love for personal love for is God because God is immutable. That means He's absolutely stable. He never changes. In terms of virtue, He is absolutely perfect, so nothing changes. So we're to have personal love for God the Father, and then that is the foundation and motivation for our impersonal love towards people. So when people fail us, when they become unattractive, when their behavior becomes unattractive, when they disappoint us, when they hurt us, when they reject us, when they become our enemies, we can still fulfill the perfect law of love defined in the scripture, to love your neighbor as yourself and to uh, do good to those who hurt you. This is called the perfect law of love. Why? Because our impersonal love for others is based upon a personal love for God, which never changes. So that the rock upon which impersonal love is built is on the integrity of God, who God is and what, he, and, and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's why one corollary of this is found over in Ephesians 4, that we are to forgive others even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. That's our model, is Christ, God the Father's impersonal love for us. See, when God loved us, John 3:16, "...for God so loved the world..." He did not love us because he, in a personal way because He found something attractive in us. God found nothing attractive in us. We were sinners. We lacked righteousness. We were unattractive. We were minus R. So God the Father loved us with an impersonal love. It was based exclusively on His righteousness, even though we were obnoxious to Him and we were enemies of His. God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were yet enemies to Him, Christ died as a substitute for us. Romans 5, verse 8. So this concept of love, impersonal love, becomes the basis for what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Freedom is an aspect of grace. I've already covered that. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, that is, the sin nature. But through love, serve one another. So you see that contrast between grace and freedom on the one hand, and arrogance and self-centeredness, self-absorption on the other hand, which is characterized by the sin nature or the flesh. So these are the two options. Don't turn your freedom in terms of licentiousness and arrogance, into an opportunity for the sin nature, for through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this particular statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is found originally in Leviticus 19.18, but it is quoted about five times in the New Testament. It is one of the most often, quoted passages from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, it is called the royal law. Why? Because Jesus told his disciples that it is by this that all men will know that you are my disciples because you have love one for another. So it is this particular type of love that goes beyond anything even in the Old Testament. Remember, in the Old Testament, they were still required to love one another. It's an Old Testament passage, Leviticus 19.18. But Jesus is saying, and John says the same thing in 1 John, that there's some new element to this in the New Testament and in the church age because it is going to be produced by the Holy Spirit. It is going to take it from what man is naturally able to do into a new sphere. The whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. This is called the royal law in James 2. It is also called, in that same passage in James 2.12, it is called the law of liberty. Now let's stop a minute and camp on that. We're talking about the royal law. What's the context of Galatians 5? To have liberty. It is for liberty that Christ sets you free. How is that done? He ends up going right back to Leviticus 19.18 that it's done through the use of impersonal love in all your relationships. It is that impersonal love that is called both the royal law in James 2 and the law of liberty in James 2.12 which means that if you are going to get to the point in your spiritual life where you're going to experience the true freedom that we have in Christ, it's going to be predicated on the fact that you have developed impersonal love in your life, which is a fruit of the Spirit. And we saw that in verse 22 when we discussed the production of the Spirit, that the first category was love. I want to bring all this together now. What we see now in the context is that Paul ends, after he gives the command, reminds them of the command, you shall love your neighbors yourself, verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, this is just the opposite, antagonism, breakdown of relationships. If you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. And then he changes the subject in verse 16 to talk about the underlying dynamics. But if 15 through 26 are taken out, Look at them as parenthetical. They describe the underlying dynamic which is going to enable you to fulfill the royal love. That is why in Galatians 5.22, love is first. Because that's the context. He's talking about impersonal love. So he's going to mention that first as a production of the Spirit. But take that out and read it this way. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement you shall love your neighbors yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Then go to verse 26. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself lest you be tempted. See how that fits. In verse 26, he's coming back to what he was talking about before we got to verse 16. He's talking about impersonal love in the congregation and the problem of arrogance and its destructiveness in personal relationships. Now, we understand the context. We understand the argument. One of the most dangerous things in life is to become arrogant. It destroys your objectivity it destroys your perspective, and it will lead you into a plethora of sins and destructive behavior. Now, before we get into the application of this, these next five or six verses, we certainly need to take some time to understand just what the Apostle is telling us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, let's begin with a little exegesis. Galatians 5.26, Let us not become boastful. And it begins with the present middle subjunctive of the verb ginomai. G-O-N-G-I-N-O-M-A-I. Present tense indicates continuous action. It, is a, it appears to be a middle voice, but it's a deponent verb, so it has an active meaning. And a subjunctive mood. The subjunctive mood is always the mood of potentiality. So it addresses our volition. So it's up to us to make a decision whether or not we are going to do this. You can choose to either be arrogant or not. So the issue is ours. The choice is ours. The, it is preceded by the negative may which looks like this, M-E. And when you take this negative, there's two negatives in Greek. There's ou and there's May. But when you take this negative with a subjunctive verb, that is a strong prohibition. It's not the strongest way to state a prohibition, but it is one of the strongest. Now, this is a very unusual construction in the Greek. And the reason I go into the Greek is that the, it's always better to go to the original languages to... Understand just exactly what was being said. Now, the thing about this is that it grabs your attention. Because normally, you find a prohibition in the aorist tense. Not the present tense, but the aorist. Aorist is one of the past tenses in the verb. We don't have anything comparable to it in English. Present is continual action in the present time. Aorist is... Just sort of summarizes past action. Now, the strongest way to, one of the strongest ways to make a prohibition and the normal way to state a prohibition is with an aorist subjunctive in a second person plural. And what we have here is a first person plural. So it's it's, uh, very unusual. So we must stop a minute and ask the question why? Since the present tense is normally used with the first person to express what is called a hortatory or volative subjunctive. And that means it expresses an exhortation, an encouragement to do something. But that's a positive command to do something. In other words, let us pray together would be a hortatory or an exhortation in the present subjunctive. But if you're going to express a negative, you would normally use an aorist subjunctive. But here he uses a present subjunctive. And this is designed here to grab our attention and to make sure that we understand that this is going to be a continual problem for every believer, especially when there are trends towards legalism. The present tense emphasizes continual action, and he is using it here because with this legalistic congregation, they're going to have to make sure that on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, they pay attention to this command. This is going to be a continual problem for them, so they need to give it continuous attention. Remember, we have not lost the sin nature as believers. There is no sin you could commit as an unbeliever that you cannot still commit as a believer. Now, the other thing we need to observe here that Paul uses the first person plural, that is us, instead of you here, to indicate that he is... He includes himself in this. He's being very tactful. Back at the beginning of this epistle, he was hard on him. He said, you have departed grace. You have gone into a false gospel. You are accursed because of that. He he doesn't even start off with a lot of nice uh, commendations to the congregation. He just immediately starts blasting them in the opening paragraphs. But here he includes himself and says, let us all... Not become boastful. Let's make sure that we don't become arrogant. He wants to make sure that now that he has their attention, that he doesn't uh, continue to just verbally slap them in the face. As a matter of fact, he's going to give a command here what it means to restore someone in a spirit of gentleness, and he's exemplifying it in the way he approaches the subject. He's not saying, now you need to make sure you don't become arrogant. He's saying, let us not become arrogant. He's taking a a tactful way. He's exemplifying the kind of humility, and that word gentleness needs to be translated humility, the kind of humility that needs to underlie and control any kind of restoration procedure. So he's going to exemplify this. Um, in the way he's straightening out the congregation. The second word he uses here is translated boastful, and it is the Greek word kenodoxos. Kenadoksos is a compound word from kenos, K-E-N-O-S, and doxos, D-O-X-O-S. This means empty, and this means glory. Kenos means empty, and doxos means glory. And it means empty glory or vain glory. Or, and it comes to mean arrogance and conceit without basis. And the point is that none of us have any basis for boasting before God. See, the boasting... Having this kind of arrogance is just the antithesis of grace and is the exact problem which underlies all legalism. People think that somehow something they do is impressing God, that they can do something. They can go to the right kind of church. They can listen to the right kind of doctrine. They can give a certain amount of money. They can pray. They can read their Bible every day. They can get involved in small groups or whatever it might be. And somehow this is impressing God, and so God is going to bless them because of what they are doing. And that takes us back to an important concept because people tend to forget this. In the character of God, God is absolute righteousness and perfect justice. Now, we've studied this quite a bit. The righteousness is the absolute standard of God's character. It is absolute perfection. His character is the standard of righteousness. It's not some external, abstract principle outside of God. It is His person, His character that is the absolute standard. His justice is the execution of that standard. Now, what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So, as unbelievers, we lack righteousness, we're minus R. The righteousness of God rejects that, so the justice of God condemns us, and we're born in a state of condemnation. But when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It is credited to our account. So that when God the Father looks at us, He sees not our lack of righteousness, but it is covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. So now, we have the grace pipeline is opened up, and the grace of God flows to us because of the grace provision of Christ on the cross. And we are blessed not because of what we do, that would be down here, but because of who and what Jesus Christ is. Now, as we grow, we've studied this, we've seen that there are different stages of grace. There's logistical grace, which means that God has promised that He is going to take care of all of our basic needs Physical needs and spiritual needs. He's given us doctrine a church. He's given us all the principles of his word. He'll provide the basics of food, shelter, clothing, air, water, whatever we need. And that has nothing to do with what we do or what we don't do. It has everything to do with who and what he is. That's logistical grace. Then there are greater grace blessings. And as we grow and mature as believers, God then, because as we grow, we develop capacity, then God distributes those greater grace blessings to us. Not because of what we do, but because he's already determined to give those blessings to us. He distributes them because now we have capacity. You would not give the keys to a brand new Mercedes to a six-year-old. No capacity. You might not even want to give the keys to a brand new Mercedes to a 25-year-old. No capacity. It has nothing to do with what they do, it's who they are. See, if we grow to maturity, then God will, if He blesses us before we have the capacity for it, then those very blessings could become a basis for our own arrogance and our own self destruction in the spiritual life because we lack the capacity for it. So all blessings in the spiritual life then are based upon our. Uh, not what we do, but are based upon um, the capacity we we develop. So that destroys all basis for boasting. It's not on anything that we do. All boasting is a result of the operation of arrogance in the believer's life. Now, there are several. I've identified four arrogant skills, and these work together and develop in a cycle. And arrogance begins with self-absorption. Self-absorption is a mental attitude that focuses on self, and you tend to interpret everything that's going on around you in terms of self. I I know I've been around some folks, and when you hear them talk, and no matter how you try to communicate to them, they're always trying to reinterpret it in terms of their own experience and background. Now, we all do that to some degree, but everything ultimately comes back to me, 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 me. So it's an orientation of self-absorption, which is a basic subjective Mindset. Now, self absorption is the mental attitude of looking at life in terms of one's own subjective impressions, experiences, and agenda. So it's a mental attitude. This leads to self indulgence, which is the overt practice of a self absorbed mentality. You start indulging all of your various uh, whims, all your desires, giving in to all of your lusts, doing whatever you want to. This then leads to the practice of self justification. Now that you have done something, you have to justify it because somebody's <coughs> going to criticize you for it. So you're going to justify it to show that you're really right and it was the best thing to do. And you've given into just self-justification where you're rationalizing and excusing your self-absorbed behavior. Once you start rationalizing and excusing your behavior, you now begin to really divorce yourself from reality and lose touch with reality. And now you are on the road to self-deception. Once you get on the road to self-deception, now you are in serious subjectivity and you have lost the ability in many cases to even look at things from an objective rational viewpoint everything is about you everything is about what it does to you and you begin to use your own subjectivity and your own emotion as the criteria for evaluating everything now this was exemplified I thought in a particular letter that was addressed to um, U.S. News and World Report and appeared in the 4 October 1999 issue. Now, when I get to the end of this, you will find that all of this has a particular personal bearing to everyone in the congregation. But this letter exemplifies a, a, a woman who is caught up in self-absorption and the arrogant skills. She, uh, she wrote, how disturbed I was to see your article in the September 6th issue about ROTC scholarships as a means of providing funds for a college education. The education associated with ROTC is a contradiction to the academic freedom enjoyed at university campuses. Military training on college campuses, in fact, makes a mockery of education. Far from taking a global view of learning, ROTC encourages narrow patriotism and a philosophy of any means to the end, i.e. killing people and polluting environments. The institutionalized mistreatment of gays and lesbians, now we see her agenda. The subjectivity, the institutionalized mistreatment of gays and lesbians in the military, and sexual harassment of women are par for the course. Well, a letter so distorted and dist- disruptive of reality could not go unanswered I'll give you the end of the story the person who wrote this letter is signed by a young man who is a air force captain serves in AWACS his name is Jonathan Clough his father is Charlie Clough who has spoken here on several occasions so doctrine always shows listen to what his son says Dear Professor Van Warmer, I just finished reading your letter to the editor in U.S. News and World Report magazine on 4 October and was compelled to address your shockingly prejudiced, obviously uninformed, and frankly laughable viewpoint on ROTC and the military in general. Your unenlightened perspective belies a reckless, if not tragic, ignorance that brings disrepute upon the institution that employs you. It is a shame you felt obliged to comment on something you apparently know so little about. I wonder if in your extensive research in social work, incidentally, the woman who wrote that was a professor of social work at the University of Northern Iowa. So Jonathan says, I wonder if in your extensive research in social work, you ever encountered someone who's actually served in the armed forces? The answer goes without saying. Allow me to be your first. Troubles me that you must be reminded that the academic freedom you enjoy and cherish so dearly was purchased with the precious lives and blood of many a noble soldier on wretched battlefields here and abroad over the past 223 years. Do you honestly believe freedom of any sort comes without tremendous cost? Are you so willfully naive to think you'd enjoy the same license if you were a professor in China, Iran, North Korea, or the Sudan? How many young men and women have you talked to lately who spent their Christmas holiday patrolling some God forsaken minefield like Bosnia or their fifth wedding anniversary in a row at sea or the birthday of their first daughter stopping a madman from achieving his goal of ethnic cleansing? Tell me, do you really think we acknowledge a call to the profession of arms so we can kill people and pollute environments? To believe such sophomoric rubbish demands some fairly sophisticated cerebral blinders. See, that's self-deception right there. I have served in the U.S. Air Force for 11 years now, flying long hours over countless global hotspots, and I have not once encountered a fellow soldier, sailor, or airman who subscribes to a, quote, narrow patriotism and a philosophy of any means to the end. Not one. Rather, they are ladies and gentlemen of highest caliber, selfless devotion to the cause of freedom, and tireless service to an often thankless nation. Your mischaracterization is so off-base it borders on unforgivable. It would seem to me that your Department of Social Work would have whole syllabi devoted to the role of the military in the field of social work. I can think of no greater social service than an institution committed to risking the lives of its members to preserve and defend the very citizenry from which it hails. How many oppressed refugees, disaster victims, and starving children have been mercifully delivered from their plight by the military in just the last decade? Need we reflect on the fact that the whole of Western Europe owes its freedom from Nazi fascism to a valiant few in olive, drab and Khaki? Perhaps you should invite a concentration camp survivor or a Kosovar Albanian to give a guest lecture extolling the magnificent social services they've benefited from at the hands of the military." Finally, I find it humorous that academics like yourselves who indoctrinate our youth with the dogma of positive tolerance for every aberrant lifestyle cannot find it within yourselves to tolerate an institution to which you owe your very peace, comfort, and well-being. See, she's obviously bought into postmodern thinking. The worst sin is intolerance, but I can be intolerant you can't. And intolerance means you don't accept it. Uh, anyway... I digress. It is an amusing double standard, he writes. My exhortation to you is to get out of that rarefied air in your office, walk over to your ROTC detachment in Lang Hall, and interact with the men and women in uniform and those aspiring to wear it. She's going to get her wish. Five different Air Force generals contacted Jonathan today. This came out in U.S. News and World Report. And the Pentagon contacted the professor and invited her to a roundtable discussion they hold for academics who are hostile to the military. So she's going to get a chance to get in touch with reality and maybe break through her arrogant skills. Well, I thought that you would enjoy that, especially since we know, have some contact with the, uh, the man who wrote that. But what that tells us is that Being arrogant, and that's how we should translate that. Let us not become arrogant based on nothing, challenging one another and envying one another. You see, this is exactly what happens in arrogance. You have a false scale of values now because they're based upon your self-absorption and your own subjectivity. And from that basis of a false scale of values, you start to judge everybody else. And what happens is, and this letter so, so characterizes it, is that in our modern society, we've rejected absolutes. Now, the interesting thing, and we're about out of time, the interesting thing is, and I learned this from Jonathan's father, who, as you remember, was a mathematics major. I think he was valedictorian at some little school up here out of Boston called MIT, and Charlie has made the observation many times that in mathematics, what makes any mathematical equation work is that there has to be con- uh, constants. So when you have a, uh, any kind of mathematical equation, 3x plus 5 equals, equals y, you have certain constants in there, like the 3 and the 5, so that you can solve for your variables. Every single mathematical equation, no matter what it is, is always based on the assumption that there are constants, that is, that there are absolutes in the universe. And what happens in subjectivity is we reject that. Now, you take that mathematical principle and you have to apply it over into the realm of ethics because everything we do and say assumes that there the existence of absolutes. Even someone as arrogant as this professor who is who would say that there are no absolutes. I can justify that because I've interacted so much with people of liberal persuasion like that. There are no absolutes. But the very statement, which is the battle cry of the new postmodernism, that there are no absolutes, but even the statement there are no absolutes presupposes an absolute, that there are no absolutes. That very statement itself is self-contradictory and assumes the reality of a constant. And so, the unbeliever in arrogance, and the believer in arrogance as well, has to assume its opposite just to be able to communicate. Even the unbeliever who says there is no God has to assume the presence of God and absolutes to be able to even make the statement there is no God, even though at the same time they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Now, that may be a new thought for some of you, but... Many of you have been around long enough. You heard Charlie when he was here last year, and that's beginning to make some sense. And so what happens is that the arrogant person establishes own relative values, and then on the basis of that subjectivity begins to try to slam dunk everybody else in the congregation, and this just creates all sorts of problems. And this is something that leads to uh, what is usually called church discipline, and there is a place for church discipline, and I want to preserve that, but it is not the arena that many people think it is. And we'll ha- we've run out of time. We'll have to come back to that next time when we get into the first part of Galatians 6. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we've had to study your word today, to be challenged by it, to realize that there are objective principles and values in the universe, and they were put there by you that you are the ultimate reference point, you are outside of creation, and you are the God who who has reached into history, you have sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, into history to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And that is the basis for everything that we have and everything that we are, and it is through his death on the cross that we have salvation and we have our spiritual life and that we can live and go forward. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that certain. All that is needed is that you say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Scripture says if you accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, that you have eternal life. The only condition is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we've studied that as we continue our study, you will make these things clear to us, that we can see how they apply to our own lives, that the Holy Spirit would break through the shell of our own subjectivity and arrogance, and make these things clear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.